This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener here in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we have two questions. First, how bad is Brett Kavanaugh, Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court seat, vacated by the swing vote Anthony Kennedy? We'll ask Erwin Chemerinsky, dean of the law school at Berkeley. Also, does your job make a meaningful contribution to society? David Graeber posted that question on the internet, and a million people clicked on it. A lot of them posted answers. Now his book about those answers is out. It's called BS Jobs, and it casts dramatic light on our economy and politics. First up today, Trump and Putin. Comment from Harold Meyerson. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, it's been a big week for Trump watchers. To figure things out, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, it's hard to keep up with the news. We're recording this on Wednesday, midday LA time. Monday, Trump went to Helsinki to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Putin, after that meeting and the press conference they held, uh, John McCain said the press conference was, quote, one of the most disgraceful performances by an American president in memory. No prior president has ever abased himself more abjectly before a tyrant, close quote, John McCain. And Michael Moore tweeted that Trump had, quote, revealed himself as a traitor, Close quote, who should have been arrested when his plane landed. So we have John McCain and Michael Moore together at last. Uh, what, what do you think about Trump and Putin in Helsinki on Monday and Trump's effort at damage control on Tuesday and then his continuing to blab on Wednesday? Well, uh, yeah, in, in, in the spectrum running from John McCain to Michael Moore, I think we've resurrected what uh, communists used to call the United Front uh, <laughs> against fascism. And there's actually, uh, you know, having just thought of that, uh, there's actually a little bit of a factual basis in that, uh, given uh, what it is that both Trump and Putin personify, which is, if not exactly fascism, at least uh, a thugocracy, mm. uh, as it were, in which, uh, in, in Putin's case, uh, it is true that journalists who've been critical of the regime and uh, activists who've been critical of uh, the Putin regime have occasionally been bought off. Uh, no such event, to the best of our knowledge, has yet happened here in the United States. Uh, but Trump certainly was breaking new ground uh, on Monday in his uh, statements, uh, essentially uh, taking Putin's word over that of the U.S. intelligence community which is headed entirely by Trump appointees, I should point out. And then, as you said, sticking his foot in his mouth again yesterday by saying uh, he thinks Trump, uh, that Russia is no longer targeting the United States for its intelligence, cyber, uh, whatever, cyber mischief, and uh, that, that uh, you know, who would know better than Putin, which is an interesting perspective on, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, almost epistemological uh, perspective that uh, you, 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 you know about these things by getting it uh, from the government, which may be doing it. 
Well, just before Trump headed off to meet Putin, the Justice Department indicted 12 Russians charging that Russia's top military intelligence service acted to sabotage the campaign of Hillary Clinton with attempts to break into state election boards, money laundering, phishing attacks to gain access to Democratic operatives. This was after the Republican-run Senate Intelligence Committee concluded that Russian actors, quote, conducted an unprecedented coordinated cyber campaign to undermine confidence in the voting process, close quote. The new indictment um, of the 12 Russians uh, reported in the, in the fine print that, remember that day back in July 2016 when Trump publicly said, Russia, if you're listening, find Hillary Clinton's 30,000 emails that are missing. That very day, Russian hackers tried for the first time to break into her servers. What do you make of the indictments? Well, they are uh, specific, if nothing else. Yeah. They, uh, they say who the uh, 12 people are, where they work, what agency of the Russian government they represent, some of their previous uh, cyber espionage uh, resume history. So uh, to begin with, it's, uh, it, it, it's a pretty uh, well-researched, uh, obviously there's no, but no trials and probably won't be, but uh, it's a pretty well-researched uh, uh, indictment as indictments go. It's actually a, a rather impressive feat. Um, and, you know, you're right that uh, the Republican-controlled Senate Intelligence Committee has uh, uh, said that, uh, yes, there's been Russian espionage. Uh, Trump's remarks on just this Wednesday that he thinks it's over have already received pushback uh, from Republicans on the Hill. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the People are affirming, uh, continuing to affirm in the in intelligence establishment, people like Dan Coates, who is the director of national intelligence, that these uh, uh, espionage activities continue. And that the red, uh, light, the red light is blinking, he said just two days ago. Yes, yes. And if anything, uh, given what Trump said today, it's probably blinking even more <laughs> because... Uh, uh, Trump has basically said, well, nothing's going on. So if uh, that's what Trump says, it's kind of like his statement in July uh, 2016. It's, uh, it, it, it may, a red light may be blinking here, but this is a green light uh, for whatever Russian <laughs> espionage activities are, uh, are going on. Or not even so much espionage. I mean, election subversion, I don't know quite what you would call that. Uh, but it's certainly meddling with uh, U.S. democratic processes. So what do you make of, this, of the fact that the same day that Trump publicly urged Russia to find Hillary Clinton's, 30, quote, 30,000 emails that are missing, that was the day that Russian hackers tried for the first time to break into Hillary's servers. Does this mean Trump already knew they were going to do that, perhaps? Well, you know, this is all in the in the realm of speculation, and uh, was there collusion? And you know, we don't know that. Uh, but I'm, I am uh, very uh, in, attuned to the argument that the collusion is public. That uh, yeah. you don't have to find a smoking gun. That uh, what Trump says at this point is is a kind of smoking gun. Uh, the collusion is in public. It was at his uh, press conference with Putin on Monday. It is in his statements on Wednesday. 
Uh, I mean, you know, what, what happened in July 2016 proves that uh, uh, Trump's sound system was working very well. He was heard uh, all the way uh, uh, to Moscow. Uh, whether uh, that was already scheduled by coincidence, whether that was uh, just, uh, you know, a bit of a heads up that uh, the Russian intelligence establishment said, oh, okay, we'll look there. We don't know that. But what we do know is that Trump's sense of his own election um, is is sufficiently insecure that he has to essentially defend uh, its its alleged integrity, which uh, is, is looking more and more suspect. And if that means throwing uh, his own intelligence establishment under the bus, there it is, washed flat. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Harold Meyerson, of course, executive editor of the American Prospect. We're talking about Trump and Putin. We said there were. You said there was a a, a united front uh, um, that that ranged uh, from John McCain to Michael Moore. There's one uh, prominent exception to the that united front on the left side, and that's Glenn Greenwald. On Democracy Now, uh, he said the Trump-Putin meeting was quote excellent. Uh, here's his argument: uh, he, it was excellent, of course, because. It's good for the United States to meet with enemies and adversaries and try to reduce tensions and limit the danger of nuclear war. He said there's nothing new about this. Obama, uh, in the he pointed to the Democratic primary debate in 2007 where Obama debated Hillary Clinton. Obama was asked whether he would meet with people like the leaders of North Korea, Cuba, Syria, uh, without preconditions. He said he would. Hillary said she would not because it would be used as a propaganda tool for repressive dictators. Glenn Greenwald points out that we all celebrated Obama at that point based on the theory that it's always better to meet with leaders even if they're repressive than to ignore them and refuse to talk to them. Uh, in 1987, he says, Reagan uh, decided to meet with Soviet leaders, and the far right took out ads against him, Glenn Greenwald says, that sounded very much like what Democrats are saying now on MSNBC and CNN. Um, so there's nothing new about presidents meeting with dictators of foreign countries. It's, of course, true that Putin is an authoritarian and domestically repressive and that but that's true of many of the closest allies of the United States Saudi Arabia for example um, and because 90% of the world's nuclear weapons are in the hands of two countries as Trump and Putin both pointed out in their joint press conference having their leaders speak to each other and get along is much better than having them refuse to speak increasing the risk not just of intentional conflict, but I'm quoting uh, Glenn Greenwald here, the risk of misperception and miscommunication that might lead to war. Okay, that's Glenn Greenwald's argument supporting what Trump uh, did in meeting with Putin. What do you, what do you think? Well, uh, if, if that's in fact all that happened, I think more people would be agreeing with Glenn Greenwald. But Glenn uh, misses the elephant in the bathtub, <laughs> which is that Trump not merely met with uh, with Vladimir Putin, but he essentially exonerated Russia for destabilizing an American election uh, and intervening uh, in the U.S. electoral process, which uh, it's 
hard to say North Korea or Saudi Arabia or Iran or any other uh, repressive regimes uh, has been accused of doing by our own government. So it, it, it kind of misses the main point that has brought Michael Moore and John McCain together. I, uh, I see what you mean. Well, I want to shift here and talk to the, the, the uh, political landscape in the changes in the political landscape in the wake of the, the outrage over Trump's uh, press conference with Putin. I read at prospect.org that Trump's meeting with Putin was a political catastrophe, a political catastrophe for him. And that, that makes impeachment now, quote, inevitable. I wonder if you agree with your colleagues at the prospect on that. Well, it's colleague. It's Bob Kuttner, who uh, uh, thought impeachment was highly likely for George W. Bush as well. <laughs> okay. One of Bob's uh, uh, perennial arguments. Uh, I don't think so. And I don't think so, because uh, to begin with, there's a Republican majority in both houses of Congress. And the Republicans uh, still, at some level, remain scared of going up against Trump because uh, the Republican base is uh, drinking the Kool-Aid that uh, Sean Hannity and uh, Tucker Carlson and people like that put out. Uh, and if they're eclectic, they may be reading Glenn Greenwald. Who knows? Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I just don't see that happening. Uh, I do think that the likelihood of uh, the Democrats taking the House in the November election, and just possibly the Senate, has certainly been increased by what Trump has said and done uh, over the past several days. So that, I think, is a major change in the landscape. And should the Democrats uh, indeed take Congress, uh, they still don't have the votes uh, to impeach and convict Donald Trump, because that takes two-thirds of the Senate, and there's no way the Democrats... We're going to get to 67 senators, uh, unless, you know, Robert Mueller produces a gun that is so smoking that even uh, the Sean Hannity's of this world have to acknowledge it. So you've said that the events of the last three days involving Trump and Putin have, in, have improved the Democrats' chances of taking the House and, and the Senate. I wonder how you think candidates and which candidates should raise this issue in their campaigns on the Democratic side. The general rule is politics is local and people vote on bread and butter issues and foreign policy is only of interest to wonks like us. Um, you think that has changed because of uh, what Trump has said about Putin? Well, I think it's been the case for some time that politics isn't local anymore, that the risk between the Democrats and what their worldview is and the Republicans and their worldview has reached a certain point that that's actually what people vote on, uh, not so much local issues uh, and even less bread and butter issues. I mean, you know, one, one thing we learned from the 2016 election was that uh, insecurity about race and gender roles and patriarchy and modernity was a major factor in uh, compelling just enough people to vote for Donald Trump. So uh, to begin with, I don't, I don't think that that's really a major factor. And I think, you know, we, we're kind of at the point where people vote as they did, say, in 1860. This is a which side are you on election. You didn't vote about whether uh, the Democrats or the Republicans would build a, a, a new bridge. Uh, you, you, you voted on the issue 
in those days of the expansion of slavery because that was the overriding national question. And uh, the overriding national question right now uh, is that between the two parties generally. And I think Trump has weakened the Republicans in the last week uh, by his conduct. I think that uh, to the degree that among the swing constituencies are upper-middle-class whites in suburban districts, uh, a lot of them with college educations, uh, I don't doubt that a lot of them are appalled by what Trump has said in the last several days. Well, looking over the landscape of our uh, candidates, uh, there is one Senate candidate of the Democrats, Beto O'Rourke in Texas, who has said that Trump's remarks with Putin merit impeachment. Uh, most of the other candidates are don't seem to be running that hard uh, on impeachment. Uh, they have been told they should be discussing jobs, health care, abortion rights. Um, of course, as you suggest, some districts are districts are different. Uh, how do you think that Beto O'Rourke is making a mistake here by making impeachment uh, an issue in his campaign in Texas? Not really. No, I mean I I, I think it's, it's it's fine for Democrats to make an issue of it. I, I tend to think it's an issue whether Democrats make an issue of it or not. Yes, uh, I think Trump has handed the Democrats on a silver platter. Uh, a very large issue that will loom large in voters' minds, uh, even if the Democratic candidates uh, fall mysteriously mute about everything uh, between <laughs> now and November. So, uh, no, I don't think I don't think uh, Beto O'Rourke is making uh, is, is making a mistake, and I think Democratic candidates uh, can raise this, and, and you know probably should raise it. But I just don't think uh, it's 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 you know I, I mean it's a little early to know what the yeah. effect of this is. Yeah. Uh, on people's voting habits, but it, it, it's clearly easier for them to say now than it was a week ago. We've only got a couple minutes left here, and I want to talk just a bit about the politics around Trump's nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court to replace the swing vote, Anthony Kennedy. Of course, there are 50 Republican votes and 49 Democratic votes in the Senate right now. Uh, the Democrats have to win at least one Republican if they're going to reject. If the Senate is going to reject this nomination, the, all the focus is on Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. Where do we stand today on the Democrats' chances? Uh, we're not sure. Uh, Susan Collins has always uh, supported Republican judicial nominees, and there are three. Democrats up for election in swing states, uh, Heidi Heitkamp uh, in the Dakotas, uh, uh, Joe Donnelly in Indiana, and uh, uh, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, who, who voted for Neil Gorsuch. So yes. uh, we, we, we don't know. I think in general, uh, one of the arguments the Democrats are going to raise in, uh, in the Kavanaugh hearings is how Kavanaugh would treat, uh, uh, you know, a possible criminal conduct by, uh, by the president. Uh, I think the notion that the president, who uh, is affirming what appears to be uh, an endorsement of uh, a foreign intelligence operation against the United States, and is uh, legally uh, in perhaps some jeopardy as a result thereof, that that president made any judicial appointment to the Supreme Court will become more of an issue. Um, so, you know, and, and to a certain degree, uh, Susan Collins or Elisa Murkowski has to factor in, and we don't know where this will be by September when this goes before the Senate, 
has to factor in, uh, will a Republican base be okay with my voting no on a Trump appointee? Uh, will a Republican base be uh, sufficiently disaffected from Donald Trump at that point that I can get away with this? I think, well, you know, we'll have to see. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. It's always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener here in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, Erwin Chemerinsky on Brett Kavanaugh. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener here in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, does your job make a meaningful contribution to society? But first, now we need to talk about Brett Kavanaugh, Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court to replace the swing vote Anthony Kennedy. For that, we turn to Erwin Chemerinsky, Of course, he's dean of the law school at UC Berkeley, author of 10 books, including two published last year, one Closing the Courthouse Doors, How Your Constitutional Rights Became Unenforceable, and the other Free Speech on Campus. He's the author of more than 200 law review articles. He writes frequent op-eds in newspapers all over the place, and he frequently argues appellate cases, including in the Supreme Court. Erwin Chemerinsky, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Well, how bad is Brett Kavanaugh? What do you think is the worst thing he's done as a judge? He wrote a dissenting opinion last year in a case related to abortion rights. The case involved whether or not a pregnant teenager who was being held in an immigration detention facility could have access to an abortion. And to me, the answer is clear. The Constitution protects a right of women have access to abortion to choose whether to terminate their pregnancy. The Due Process Clause says no person. It has nothing to do with citizen. And yet, Judge Kavanaugh wrote a dissent saying that she should have no right of access to abortion. This would be a creating of a new right, and obviously that isn't true. To me, it's very disturbing of where he's likely to be on one of the most important issues that's going to come before the court, whether to reconsider and overrule Roe versus Wade. And what about Kavanaugh on voting rights, that South Carolina case that came before him? It's very disturbing. Um, There's not a lot of track record on voting rights, but there was a good article, I think it was in Mother Jones magazine, about the South Carolina case, and again, showing that he's going to be with the conservatives with regard to allowing the government to restrict voting rights, defer to state governments, even when the effect is very much to the disadvantage of minority voters. Well, so that's a couple of the worst things that he's done. On the list of the most promising things, I would list the fact that when he worked for Kenneth Starr on the impeachment investigation of Bill Clinton, he helped draft the part arguing that a president could be impeached for lying to the public. Right now, that seems kind of promising, doesn't it? Yes, so he also then wrote law review articles, including one in the Minnesota Law Review in 2009, which seemed to express a very different view with regard to executive power. 
And it just came out that he gave a speech a few years ago where he was asked, are there any Supreme Court cases you might want to overrule? And he said yes. And then they asked him, and which ones? And his initial answer was, no, I don't want to tell you, and everyone laughed. But then he said, I'll give you an example of a Supreme Court case that should be overruled. And the example he picked was a case called Morrison v. Olson in 1988. There, the Supreme Court, in a seven-to-one decision, upheld the creation of an independent special prosecutor, the so-called independent counsel. That's what led to Kenneth Starr with regard to the Whitewater investigation. And Judge Kavanaugh said that he thinks that that decision was wrong, even though only Justice Scalia dissented, and that Justice Scalia's opinion was correct. This, to me, expresses a view with regard to executive power and a view with regard to disdaining checks on executive power that's very disturbing. So if Kavanaugh is willing to talk about decisions that should be reviewed to political groups, I guess this is a conservative uh, group, shouldn't he be required to answer the same kind of question by the Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee reviewing his nomination? I think he should be required to answer questions. I think every nominee should be required to answer questions. If you think about it, why shouldn't a nominee tell us views? Well, I can think of three answers to that. One is that the nominee's views don't matter, but none of us believe that. We all know that a judge's ideology tremendously influences decisions. Second possibility is that he has no views. Well, we know he does with regard to executive power, yes. and of course he does this to the major constitutional issues. And the third is that somehow he'd be biased if we know his views. But we know how Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Clarence Thomas are going to vote with regard to whether Roe versus Wade should be overruled. No one would say that makes them unbiased. Not knowing somebody's views doesn't make them less biased. And so I think it's appropriate to require a candidate to say, if you were on the court when Morrison versus Olson was decided, how would you have voted? If you were on the court when Roe versus Wade was decided, how would you have voted? And so on. But the question is, will the Senate be willing to deny confirmation to Kavanaugh or to any nominee for refusing to answer questions? In the past, of course, the practice has been this charade, what did you call it, a kabuki a theater where the candidates say they can't answer any questions, including the simplest ones. Uh, you have had some experience with this, I think. Right. Well, the phrase kabuki theater actually comes from Joe Biden. In January of 2006, I testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee against the confirmation of Samuel Alito. And there was a break in the proceedings. Senator Biden came up to me and said, you know, this is all an exercise in kabuki theater. He said, everyone in this room knows that Samuel Alito is going to be a very conservative Supreme Court justice. He said, the Republicans are all pretending. He's open-minded and doesn't have an ideology. So the Democrats are all trying to ask a question and trip him up, and he's too smart for that. Of course, Samuel Alito has turned out to be every bit as conservative as the Republicans could have hoped, and every bit as conservative as the Democrats could have feared. So I want to go back to this report that we just got on Wednesday morning that Kavanaugh talked about the Independent Counsel Act as a decision involving a decision that he thought should be overruled. What was the venue for that conversation? Uh, it was a speech like to American Enterprise Institute. Um, I just read of this this morning, yeah. and it was stunning to me 
because it expresses an overall view of executive power. It's pretty extreme. That case was seven to one with only Justice Scalia taking the dissenting view. And according to the reports in the press, Judge Kavanaugh said that Judge Scalia's position has now come to be accepted. And that's not true at all. So we have Kavanaugh on tape talking about at least one case that he thinks should be overruled to a conservative political group or think tank of, of some kind. Seems to me that's going to make it pretty hard for him not to answer similar questions before the Judiciary Committee, but maybe I'm naive about that. Well, the Republicans control the Judiciary Committee. The Republicans control the Senate. So long as they're willing to allow him to say, I can't answer because it might come before me, and they're willing to confirm him anyway, he can get away with it. If one Republican senator, and that's probably all it'll take because John McCain apparently can't participate for health reasons, and if all of the Democratic senators from red states are willing to stand up and say, we won't confirm him without answers, then he can be forced to answer. Now, I want to get back to the, the worst rulings of uh, Judge Kavanaugh. His ruling on net neutrality was very uh, disturbing to a lot of our friends. Remind us what that case was about and what he said well, about it. Net neutrality, I think, is such an important thing to make sure that no matter what Internet service provider we have, we have full access to the Internet. And this was something that the Obama administration, through the Federal Communications Commission, promulgated. And I think there's no doubt that the FCC had the authority to do it, but Kavanaugh was on the other side of that issue. And, of course, the Trump administration, through its FCC, has rescinded net neutrality. And I, th I think that his argument was that the net neutrality rule infringes on the freedom of corporations, the corporations that provide Internet uh, service. Uh, does that remind you of anything in the history of the Supreme Court? Sure. It reminds me of the time from the 1890s yeah. to 1936 when the Supreme Court was very aggressively protecting corporate rights at the expense especially of consumers and employees. This was the era when the Supreme Court was striking down child labor laws, minimum wage laws, maximum hour laws. And this idea of protecting corporations at the expense of consumers is enormously troubling. And that's what Judge Kavanaugh's opinion was all about. Another problem with Judge Kavanaugh, do you think it's a good idea for the president to be able to pick the judges who are likely to rule on his own legal case, particularly if the issues regarding the special counsel come before the Supreme Court? I think as a constitutional matter, the president gets to nominate a Supreme Court justice and the Senate gets to decide whether to confirm the individual. I don't think there's any constitutional limit that's imposed on President Trump to be able to pick. The question will come if Judge Kavanaugh becomes Justice Kavanaugh and issues regarding Trump and legal matters go before the Supreme Court, will Kavanaugh have to recuse himself then? Yes. When United States versus Nixon was before the United States Supreme Court, there were four justices, Berger, Blackman, Powell, and Rehnquist, who were appointed by Richard Nixon. William Rehnquist recused himself and didn't participate because he had been an assistant attorney general in the Nixon Justice Department. But the other three justices, Berger, Blackman, and Powell, participated and actually ruled against Richard Nixon. It was unanimous. So who gets to decide 
whether a future Justice Kavanaugh should recuse himself from United States versus Trump. Assuming he's confirmed by the Senate, Justice Kavanaugh decides. One of the Supreme Court's procedural aspects that I've always disagreed with is it's left to each justice for himself or herself to decide whether to participate or to decide whether to be recused. This got public attention a number of years ago when Dick Cheney was vice president and there was an issue concerning the conduct of Cheney as vice president. And there was a case before the Supreme Court. And just before it, Justice Antonin Scalia went duck hunting with Vice President Cheney, and there was a motion to disqualify Justice Scalia, and he refused to disqualify himself and wrote an opinion justifying that conclusion. But it's left to each justice on his or own to decide whether to participate in any given case. And who has recused themselves recently? Well, in any given year, justices often recuse themselves. Justice Gorsuch this past term recused himself from some cases because they'd come from the Tenth Circuit. Justice Kagan frequently has recused herself. Any cases that were pending with regard to when she was Solicitor General of the United States, she wouldn't participate in. So when the Supreme Court had the major affirmative action case a couple of years ago, University of Texas, Fisher v. Texas, Austin, Justice Kagan didn't participate to involve the Solicitor General. Um, Justice Sotomayor has recused herself in a number of cases that were in her appellate court, the Second Circuit, when she was there. If justices own stock in a company, they'll recuse themselves. Um, sometimes they recuse themselves without even explaining why. Hmm. Well, if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Erwin Chemerinsky about Brett Kavanaugh, Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court. Erwin, of course, is the dean of the law school at UC Berkeley. The fact sheet about Kavanaugh released by the administration praised him for opposing what they called, quote, illegal job-killing regulations that had been released by, quote, unaccountable independent agencies, close quote. What are they talking about? What they're talking about is a number of environmental regulations that were promulgated by the Obama administration were struck down by the D.C. Circuit and Kavanaugh participating. Also, Kavanaugh has been part of arguing that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is unconstitutional because it has too much independent authority. So I think that's what they're referring to. But let's keep in mind, these are regulations designed to protect the environment, to deal with the problem of climate change. These are regulations designed to protect consumers. And Judge Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit has been on the other side. I've heard there's at least one issue on which Kavanaugh is, is plainly outside the mainstream, even of a lot of current conservative jurisprudence, and that's guns and the Second Amendment. What's the story there? I think Judge Kavanaugh, if he becomes Justice Kavanaugh, is going to be a strong gun rights advocate on the Supreme Court. He was in favor of the right of individuals to have guns in the District of Columbia versus Keller, Keller case before it got to the Supreme Court. He's perceived among the potential list of nominees as one of the most ardent in terms of Second Amendment rights. So if he is to be confirmed and joins the court, what cases do we expect will come up next term that he would have the swing vote on? First, it, the Supreme Court hasn't granted review in it, but I expect they will. The question of whether sexual orientation discrimination violates the federal employment discrimination statute, Title VII. 
Title VII prohibits employment discrimination based on race, sex, or religion. Some federal courts of appeals have said the prohibition of sex discrimination includes forbidding sexual orientation discrimination. There's cert petition pending, as I said, not yet been granted, but I expect the Supreme Court will take it, and I expect Judge Kavanaugh will cast the deciding vote. The other example I've got to mention is a case that, I argue, that I'm going to be arguing in the Supreme Court the first week of January, a case called Franchise Tax Board versus Hyatt. The issue is, can a state government be sued in another state's courts? In 1977, the Supreme Court said yes. Two years ago, this case was before the court in terms of whether to overrule that earlier precedent, and the justices split four to four. Well, now we'll have two new justices in Gorsuch and Kavanaugh who didn't participate there. Soon on the horizon, there's so many other issues where Kavanaugh is likely to cast the deciding vote. There are many cases pending in the lower courts now challenging state laws restricting access to abortion. Will the court use them as a vehicle to overrule Roe? Or even if the court doesn't overrule Roe, by the, will the court, by upholding these many restrictions, in essence, kill Roe by a thousand cuts? Um, there's affirmative action cases pending. There's a lawsuit against Harvard University for engaging in affirmative action. It's a federal district court but within a couple of years, it's going to get to the Supreme Court. There are so many challenges to President Trump's immigration policies yes. pending in the lower courts. His rescinding of DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, his taking funds away from so-called sanctuary cities and states. All of these are cases where I would expect Brett Kavanaugh would cast the deciding vote. And the one we haven't talked about here is Obamacare. Is that likely to come before the court in the, uh, in the next year or two? The reality is that the Trump administration has done so much to gut Obamacare already. The, for example, the repealing of the individual mandate as part of the tax bill this past winter. Um, there are challenges, though, still going on to Obamacare. The Trump administration has announced it's refusing to defend Obamacare, so there could be further fatal blows to Obamacare from the Supreme Court. Last question. We know that the vote right now is 50 Republican votes in the Senate, 49 Democratic votes. Possibly the Democrats will be able to recruit uh, Lisa Murkowski or Susan Collins to join them. But if that doesn't happen today, that seems uh, less likely that that will happen. Kavanaugh will be confirmed. What will it be like when the court is firmly under the control of the right? What will it be like for us, and what do we do when we no longer have a chance to win at the court? This will be the most conservative Supreme Court since the mid-1930s. We're replacing Anthony Kennedy as the median justice, the justice in the middle, with John Roberts as the median justice. And John Roberts is very conservative. I can identify issues like abortion, affirmative action, gay and lesbian rights, limits on the death penalty, the exclusionary rule. We're shifting from Kennedy to Kavanaugh could mean a dramatic change with regard to all of our lives. And these are things that affect all of us, often the most intimate, the most important parts of our lives. Erwin Chemerinsky, he's dean of the law school at UC Berkeley. Erwin, thanks for giving us the bad news about Judge Kavanaugh today. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I just 
look forward to it being at a time when there's more cheerful things to discuss. Great. Well, thanks for talking with us today. Okay. Thank you. I'm John Wiener here in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, David Graber on BS Jobs. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener here in L.A. on KPFK. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry, quickly. But first, does your job make a meaningful contribution to the world? David Graeber posted that question on the Internet, and a million people clicked on it, and then a lot of them posted answers. Now his book about that question and those answers is out. It's called Bull Jobs. David Graeber was an Occupy activist, and he teaches anthropology at the London School of Economics. He wrote the book Debt, The First 5,000 Years, and he publishes in Harper's The Baffler in The Guardian. We reached him today in London. David Graeber, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, you argue that huge numbers of people, especially in North America and Europe, work at jobs that are basically pointless and that the people doing them secretly know their jobs don't need to be performed. Consultants, communications coordinators, PR people, financial strategists, corporate lawyers. But I thought the whole point of capitalism, the thing that makes it such a ruthless and efficient engine of profit, is the the speed-ups, the downsizing, the layoffs, the replacement of human labor with machines, eliminating human labor wherever possible. Your concept of bull jobs suggests that that understanding of capitalism is deeply wrong. Yes, either that or the system that we're in is rapidly no longer resembling capitalism, at least as, as normally conceived. I should make clear that, I mean, this is true, that, that speed-ups, crunches, I mean, all of that has been happening in the 80s, but the pressure has fallen on blue-collar workers, not white-collar workers, on, on wage earners and not salary earners. So, so, in effect, what's happened is that they're just super-exploiting anybody who actually is productive, but at the same time, they're hiring more and more people who just kind of sit around making their boss feel important. <laughs> Well, let's talk about the future as foreseen by John Maynard Keynes back in 1930. That's the opening of your new book. Keynes thought that by, what, the year 2000, capitalism would have be... 2030. 2030. That capitalism would have become so productive that the average work week would be 15 hours. So people who who think about this say, most of them say, the reason Keynes turned out to be wrong was that he failed to see consumer society. He failed to see that given the choice between working fewer hours and getting more stuff, we have chosen the latter. Is, isn't that true, that we've all fallen for consumerism? Well, you know, that's the funny thing. We, we have this idea in our heads, but if you look at the kind of jobs that have been created, a lot of the jobs that existed in the 1930s are gone, and new jobs have been created. But those jobs, you know, are not exactly you know selling each other designer sushi or designing iPhones. Actually, very few of them are involved in things like that. We have this rhetoric about the consumer economy, especially the service economy, 
since the 80s, people have been saying, oh, we're shifting from an industrial to a service economy. But when people talk about services, what they imagine is, you know, people are serving each other coffee or cutting each other's hair, giving each other elaborate massages or whatnot. But actually, the funny thing is, if you really look at the numbers, actual services haven't changed at all. It's been about 20% of the workforce doing those kind of services. And, you know, there's been a shift from people doing it in private households to, to, to people doing it in shops. But basically, aside from that, there's been no change. What there has been is an enormous growth in clerical, managerial, and administrative work. And that's exactly the zone where so many people think that their jobs are totally pointless. Well, one obvious issue here is who decides whether a job is pointless or a job is necessary. And the mainstream view of that is the market is the best judge of that. People are willing to pay for better iPhones and designer sushi. Uh, and so are right, the... But that's not where it's coming from. I mean, as I say, the, the, those jobs are not making iPhones or selling sushi. That's stayed about the same or even declined if you're talking about manufacturing. It's, it's clerical and administrative jobs. Now, who's paying for that? Well, my explanation is um, it's, it's a result of trickle-down economics to a large degree. Uh, and it's a result of the moving to a more financialized rent-seeking economy. So, so, for example, you know, if you have an old Keynesian-style stimulus, the one thing both left and right agree on is more jobs is good, right? We have as many people working as possible. Yes. It's a pretty dubious premise, but like, well, let's allow that. Um, the left solution has generally been to give money to ordinary people, give money to working-class or middle-class people, and you know, working-class people will buy food and, 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 and necessities, uh, or poor people will buy, buy necessities. Middle-class people, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll the ones who will get the iPhones or they'll get swimming pools. But either way, you know, you're employing people. People who own companies will, will hire people to make those things because there is demand. Uh, and if you just cut taxes and say, oh, rich people are job creators, we're going to give them more money, and they will make up their minds, uh, they will hire people and, and create, because they are job creators. Well, what's going to happen? They're not going to hire people to make manufacturers if there's nobody to buy those manufacturers. And in fact, just recently, you know, when Trump was announcing his big tax cuts, they asked a whole bunch of manufacturers, uh, are you going to hire more people when you get a tax cut? And of course, almost all of them said no. But what will they do? Well, they, they know they're under pressure to, to create jobs. So, so what they do is they hire basically flunkies, the equivalent of feudal retainers. They feel a certain responsibility to spread the money around, so they just Get people to make them look and feel good. And a lot of these jobs, um, you have to bear in mind that, that in a large corporation, the power and prestige of an executive is largely measured by how many subordinates they have, how many yes. people they have working on it. Yes. Well, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> good point. Well, kind of the, the underlying basic question here is how do you define a bull job? Your initial Facebook post had a brilliant solution is you just ask people, do you consider you your job to be a bull job? And uh, you found out quite a bit just that way. Am I right? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I should make it very clear. I do not consider it my business to tell anybody who thinks they're doing something useful in the world that they're wrong. On the other hand, if somebody tells me, no, my job shouldn't exist, well, who would know better? I mean, I suppose it's possible there are some people who are doing something useful and are unaware of it, but it seems unlikely. It seems much more likely that people are, you know, if they're going to be mistaken at all, they're going to be mistaken the other way. But, you know, I'm not going to argue with them. Let's just assume everybody's right. Just, to, you know, as, uh, since nobody else knows better, 
as a sort of starting position. Well, what do we find? And we find extraordinary numbers of people feel that their jobs really are useless and pointless. They did a survey, YouGov did a survey in the UK and discovered 37% of all workers said, my job makes no meaningful contribution to the world at all. Uh, Holland, they actually came up with 40%. These were very high. I mean, it's way higher than I meant. I I was thinking it would be 15 or 20, to be perfectly honest. And when I saw that, I was like, oh my God. Well, think about all the people who would just never say that. You're never going to have an auto mechanic or a nurse or a bus driver or a musician even for that matter. You know, they're not going to say that. So, so who is? Basically, anybody who's sitting there in an office who you might be wondering if they secretly think their job shouldn't exist, I would say this shows they almost certainly do. And what do you think are the moral and psychological and political effects of working at a job that you consider to be bull****? Well, it's disastrous. I mean, people talk about the rise of clinical depression. I think something like 49% of all Americans will have some episode of clinical mental illness in their lives. Overwhelming majority of that is depression. And people tie that to consumerism. And I'm not saying that there isn't a connection. But, you know, what depression is about is meaninglessness and purposelessness. If, if people are sitting there, like, in a literal situation, you know, of meaninglessness and purposelessness, why is it surprising they feel depressed? In fact, you get depression, you get stress, you have terrible workplace behavior. Um, a lot of people commented on, you know, when people have a common purpose that they think is legitimate, they treat each other okay. You know, there's a certain camaraderie, there's cooperation, but the moment everybody is secretly aware that they're laboring in complete meaninglessness, you know, that there's no purpose in what they're doing, people start becoming awful to each other. The bullying, workplace harassment, just awful behavior uh, increases. So, so and, and then you get between the depression for the meaninglessness and the bad behavior the meaninglessness causes, then you get psychosomatic illness. Lots of people reported all these strange conditions that would just vanish the moment they got a real job. And what about the politics of this? What do people do with their resentment and, and the depression? Who do, they, who do they see as responsible if they think about that? Well, you see, this is something that I think is, is really pernicious and we really don't talk about that our society has become sort of held together. Our politics has been held together by these resentments. And the resentments of people who get to do something that's perceived as real. Okay, so you have that one type of resentment. Working class people, you know, resent the people they imagine as grabbing all the really good, useful jobs or creative jobs. But then people in the bull jobs, they resent the working class. And, and you really see this. Like, why is it that the only people who really took a hit after the 2008 crash, it wasn't bankers, it was auto workers. Now, there's a sense of like, well, you guys get to make cars. That's a real job. You want like middle class benefits and vacations too? That's not fair. Um, <laughs> teachers. Now, why do people get mad at teachers? And I, I've actually heard right wing activists say, well, we tried making an issue out of the school administrators first, but it, it didn't catch on. But then as soon as we talked about the teachers, everybody got really mad and angry. I mean, there seems to be this idea, like, you get to teach kids. That's real work, you know? And, and people even say, we don't want teachers to be motivated by money. You know, we want by altruistic self-sacrificing people to be teachers. How dare you demand a middle-class lifestyle? You seem to have found a general rule about pay in our society, that the mm. jobs that really benefit other people, nurses, child care workers, home health aides, teachers, garbage collectors, mm. are the poorly paid ones. What, what, what can be done 
to eliminate the meaningless and unnecessary jobs and reward the workers who do the essential jobs that actually help people. Well, you know, I really think there needs to be a moral transformation about what we think is valuable in work to begin with. And I think this is really important. I've coined the phrase, the revolt of the caring classes. And I think globally, we're seeing this more and more. The working class, even in the 19th century, you know, there's, it's not like most working class people were factory workers. All these jobs like caretakers and caregivers and uh, you know, most work involves maintaining things, taking care of things, fixing things, cleaning things, more than it involves producing or making things. So we have this sort of worked idea that, like, work is production. Well, you know, yes, some work is production, but a lot of you, – you make a cup once, you wash it a thousand times, right? Yeah. Most yeah. work is actually keeping things the same and, and taking care of things. And, and, and I think we need to rethink our, our, our whole idea of what value is, what social value is, what economic value is. Ultimately, all value-producing labor is a form of care. I think we need to look at the feminist literature and, and just start over again and, and think about what is really valuable in work. And, and if we do that, we realize, we'll realize that we're sort of cutting edge of the proletariat now, the working classes, are caregivers. When I was involved in Occupy, uh, there was a blog called We Are the 99%, and people who could, didn't have time to actually take part in the occupations, they're working too hard to sort of indicate their support by making these little placards telling their stories. And it was really remarkable. Because almost all of them had some variation of the same story, which was, I wanted to have a job which actually benefits society. You know, I could have been some jerk and gone off and made a lot of money. I could have become a lawyer or you know, a financier, but you know, I wanted to do something useful. So I got involved in teaching, or I got involved in healthcare, or I got involved in taking care of old people or disabled people or providing social services, whatever it might be. But the thing is, if you want to actually care for others, then they'll pay you so little and put you so deeply in debt, you can't even take care of your own family. Mm. I think this is ridiculous. And it was that indignation which really drove the protest more than anything else. I think we tell the history, uh, you know, that's that was the first moment of this kind of revolt of the current classes. You look at the, the big strikes that are happening. You know, here in the UK, it's cleaner strikes everywhere. In France, suddenly um, nursing home workers are rebelling. This has never happened before in French history. In America, of course, we're having the teachers' strikes. I think this is the wave of the future. The book is Bull Jobs. The author is David Graeber. David, fantastic stuff. Thanks for talking with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Take care. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Harold Meyerson. He talked about Trump and Putin. We also spoke with Erwin Chemerinsky about Trump and Brett Kavanaugh. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones. We had extra production help today from Alan Minsky. And thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry, quickly. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.